Well, when you're done talking, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 26. And we're going to continue looking tonight in, um, in Isaiah's Apocalypse, right? We, I explained to you that chapters 24 through 27, um, you know, they, a lot of theologians have taken to calling this Isaiah's Apocalypse because it is a, a presentation in symbolic form of, you know, the end of the age, right? And it's really been amazing to me how, as we've been going through Isaiah as a whole, how perfectly, you know, what we've been studying in Romans on Sunday morning is dovetailed with what we're studying on Wednesday night. It's really, I mean, I, it's really remarkable. It's not something that I could have orchestrated. And truthfully, tonight's no exception. Because in this 26th chapter, we're going to see Isaiah unfold the way that, that the promise of God's future deliverance for his people and the judgment um, of his enemies, the way that his actions and his promises, how they both combine to keep his people steadfast and secure, to keep them, you know, solid as they await their future redemption and the full revelation of Yahweh's glory. And this chapter is really interesting because it's, it's very intricately woven. Like it's, you know, in the other ones, as we were looking at them, you know, uh, it was very easy to sort of identify the, uh, the, the, the time frame and everything. Like, for instance, in Isaiah 24, it's really obvious. This is the future coming judgment, you know. And then in 25, the, the future glory. But here, what happens is, is we see... Um, features of future glory combined with contemporary situations. We even see um, uh, Isaiah bringing in the the future resurrection of the saints who have died in faith. In fact, it's God's voice that comes in at the end of this chapter, which is really cool. So this is a chapter that speaks volumes to both Isaiah's contemporaries, the remnant, you know, in the days of Judah that were that were suffering so, um, so much. Um, under not only the, the hand of their enemies, but the disciplining hand of God, right? But also for us. And so I want us to look at this tonight. First thing I want us to do is, is take a look at this future song of, of thanksgiving and rejoicing. And it's found in, in, in verses 1 through 6. And we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and kind of take it apart. Look what he says. In, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. So... What are we seeing here? Well, you know, the remnant in Isaiah's day, right, just like in our own, found themselves in a very spiritually challenging and difficult situation, right? They lived amongst the people who were godless, who were uh, idolatrous, who were indifferent to the law and the righteousness of God. Like they, they, they threw off, really, they cast off all restraint to pursue their own desires, right? And yet here's Isaiah voicing the, the song of the remnant, and he's confident That the whole of human history, no matter what it may look like at the moment, right? That the whole of human history was actually leading to one point. It was leading to the full establishment of the kingdom of God, right? The revelation of God as sovereign and and, and glorious and the revelation of God in all of his majesty to this heavenly Jerusalem, specifically the eternal city of God. And so using imagery that would have, you know, resonated with his contemporaries, um, specifically, you know, those guys in Judah, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, look at verses 1 and 2 again. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah, right? 
in the land of the redeemed. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. So here's what Isaiah is picturing. He's picturing, he's picturing the people of God, this remnant in Judah, right? Who are singing and celebrating the existence of their strong city, Jerusalem. This mighty and, and, and wonderful city, right? And, and really, what we know they're talking about, prophetically, he's talking here about the new Jerusalem, right? He's talking about Zion that comes down from heaven, the city that is established upon God's salvation and that rises above all of the ruins of the city of man, right? Like all of the nations of man, they're all coming to nothing. They're all coming to, to dust. And the fruition of the, of the kingdom is yet to come. And, and God's going to destroy the faults specifically for the purpose of raising up the true, right? And when he describes the city, it's, it's described again as, as a city that has been, the, in which God has set up salvation as walls and, and bulwarks. It's a, it's a city that's been fashioned by God's grace. That's the idea. That it's been fashioned by his, his sovereign right, by his mercy, and by his compassion to the remnant. Right? We'll see this a little bit later on. It's a city that, that is fashioned by God for those to whom he has shown his saving love and whom he has chosen to be its inhabitants. And we see that because not everybody gains access, right? I mean, I want you to see that. Not everybody's going to gain access to this city. What Isaiah's picturing is like, here's the city, the city that God has created, right? This new Jerusalem. And he pictures this processional of the people up to that city. That's what he's picturing. And, and the cry to open the gates to the righteous nation and to those who keep faith with God. In fact, the call to the gatekeepers is really a vivid way of highlighting what are the entrance qualifications for those who are allowed to enter this, this strong city of salvation. First of all, they're a righteous nation, right? And that word for nation is a word that implies people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's not just Judahites. It's not just Israelites. It is people from every tribe and nation and tongue who have been made right with God by His mighty works. Not that they in and of themselves are thoroughly and perfectly righteous, but it's that God has made them so. That's the idea. And, and, and you know, they've received righteousness from, from the king in Zion. And that, again, is going to become even clearer as we progress through this chapter, right? These people for whom the king has prepared the city. And there are people, incidentally, that keep faith with him. That's really important. I want to emphasize that, underline that. The idea is faith in its fullness or faith in perpetuity or faith that doesn't get extinguished. It's, faith, it's, it's, it's the picture or description of those who have clung to the promises of God's covenant, not departing from Yahweh, not departing from his truth. People who have endured to the end, even in the midst of a world that tries everything it can to strip that faith away. Right. We're familiar with that, aren't we? Like we live in a world in which continually our faith is being assaulted. Continually our trust in God is being assaulted. Continually the truth that we hold to is being undermined or attempted to being undermined, right? Like that's the kind of world that we live in. It's no different than the remnant in Isaiah's day. But then what happens is, is that this song of thanksgiving and rejoicing then turns to one of confession. And it's confession of God's faithfulness, right? Look at verse 3 again. He says, You keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And the idea is this, is that Isaiah is confessing and the people of God are confessing that, you know what? While everything all around may be turmoil and strife, the remnant that Yahweh 
The, the, the remnant confesses that Yahweh keeps his people in perfect peace. He, he, he keeps them literally in shalom, shalom, right? Remember, you know, whenever you want to really emphasize something, you double it in Hebrew. Again, here's another one. He keeps it in shalom, shalom, right? He keeps his perfect people in perfect peace. And the idea is this all-embracing peace, like a peace that defines everything. It's the idea here of wholeness, of fullness of well-being, right? Like everything is right with you and with God, that, that there's true rest in his favor, the enjoyment, the full enjoyment of reconciliation with him, right? That's the idea. And the root of that divine peace, that peace, peace, the remnant talks about, is a mind that is stayed on God, a mind that trusts in God, right? Now, in the sense of the Hebrew words here, and this is pretty cool, in the Hebrew, the sense is, the sense that's, that, that's described here, the sense of the mind is it's, it's one that's undivided. It's, it's, it's without wax. It's sincere, right? That, that's a word, the, the word sincere comes from, from the ancient practice where they would take you know, pottery that had been broken and they would piece it back together. And if there was any little holes in it, they'd fill it in with wax. And the way that you would know if it was a hole, a real, you know, solid vessel was you take it and you hold it up to the sun, you know, and if anything shined through, you're like, yeah, okay, this isn't, this isn't the genuine article, right? But that's the idea here. It's the idea of sincerity. It's the, it's, it's the idea of a, of, of a, of a mind that is steady and made up that holds God in his word in highest esteem. It's a, it's a convinced mind. In New Testament terms, we'd call it a mind that's firm in its faith, 1 Peter 5.9. Or a mind that is rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, Colossians 2.7. But it's a vital characteristic for those who are to endure until the end. And certainly God preserves us, but it's a vital characteristic for those who endure to the end. In fact, I can't stress how important this is. The human heart by nature is not stable, is it? By nature, our hearts are not stable. Our, heart, our hearts get blown all over the place, right? It's, our minds wander and waver and change with every shifting circumstance, with every worldly influence. And the reason is, is because we've really got, in and of ourselves, no firm foundation upon which to rest our mind and our hearts, right? We just don't have it. And so, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent instability in us apart from the Lord, the idea is that when we rest our minds upon the Lord, not only is not just merely knowing what his word says or even confessing and saying, yes, God's word is true, but actually believing it, staking our hearts and our lives on it. That's when our minds are firm and constant. That's when our souls are preserved in his perfect peace because we rest not upon the changing sands of human opinion, right? But rather upon God's eternal truth. And we know this too often. We, or we know this, you know, in ourselves. You know, some calamity happens. Some trial threatens to, you know, toss me, right? And the question is, do I remain firm? Or do, you know, do I, do I you know, devolve into turmoil and fear? And that rolls, I think, comes down to this. This question. Do I actually believe that God is sovereign? I mean, confess, I confess that he is. Do I actually believe that I am the object of God's love? Do I actually believe that God is faithful in all of His ways to His people, or are they just things that I say? Right? You with me? Yes. Those two things are very different. It's not enough to just say stuff. We've got to really believe it. Right? You know, 
You think about birds. You can te- teach birds to echo anything, can't you? I mean, like those, whatever, the ones that talk. What are the ones that talk? Par- yeah. Like, you can teach them to say anything. But do they really understand what they're saying? No, they're just performing for a cracker. Let's be honest. They're performing for a cracker, right? And sometimes we do that same thing. We perform for what we think is our cracker rather than like, what I'm saying, I really believe. Like, this is root truth for me. And it makes all the difference between, between being unstable and being shifted and like tossed and like all over the place, doesn't it? It really does. And then notice what happens with this song. And then it moves, it moves from this, this confession to now to exhortation and evangelism. This is so cool. Look at verse 4. There's the cry from the remnant. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Right? The remnant's fate, their trust, their hope in Yahweh. It leads them to call all people, call on all people to trust in Him. And so what we've got here is, is this cry of the redeemed to everyone to place their trust in the one whom the redeemed have found to be a true rock. Now let's think about that. First of all, this is an exhortation first to one another, right? To the, to the other members of the remnant. Like, man, don't give up. Don't quit. Like, it's to remember, it's, it's an exhortation to one another to remember that faith is not a flash in the pan, Right? It's not just this thing that you miraculously exercise at one point in your life and that's the end of it. But it's a lifelong commitment, right? And the only way, it's the only way of life because the one upon whom it rests, that that trust, that faith, is the Lord God and He's an everlasting rock, right? So our faith can't be extinguished. Don't let it be, right? That's the idea. But then second, this is a call to those who are facing eternal judgment to humble themselves. To renounce all their pride and their confidence in themselves and in the false promises of a fallen world. To turn and to, and to place their full trust and their faith and reliance in Yahweh alone. Because He alone is the rock. He's the durable one. He's the, the unchanging one. The powerful one who is able to save. He endures forever and nothing can withstand Him. He's the only firm foundation. That's it. In fact, the New Testament confirms that this rock is actually Christ, right? It speaks of Christ. Peter writes, speaking of Jesus, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, a rock, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame, right? That song should resonate with us, beloved. It really ought to. Like, if you think about us, and you think about our place with the Lord, it ought to resonate with us. This ought to be our song, and we ought to sing it passionately. We ought to be continually, you know, exhorting one another to strong and unwavering faith. To, you know, encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, right? As it says in Hebrews. We should be invested in ensuring that the, that the, st- that the faith of our brothers and our sisters in Christ doesn't waver. It doesn't wane. But it's robust and it's strong. Right? We need to be the means God uses to encourage our brothers and sisters to keep pressing on right to keep laying hold of christ because he's laid hold of us right but then not only that we need to be urgently and fervently calling the lost who are facing eternal judgment to come to christ while there's still time right we need to do that you know we can't let our our understanding of theology as reformed you know baptist we can't let that be an excuse for complacency when it comes to personal evangelism. 
complacency when it comes to, to reaching people that are lost, right? Here's why. Here's why. Verses 5 and 6 tell us, For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Listen, the whole world of men, the lofty city of pride and rebellion, the schemes, the stratagems of man, the imaginary might and the wisdom of man. Listen, it is coming to a swift, a definite and a thorough end. It will be trampled to dust. And if we are alert, we see it already. We see the death pangs of our culture, don't we? We see the death throes of of this world. We see the gracious prejudgments of God that are already evident, right? Prejudgments tell you what? That judgment is coming, right? Prepare now. The fate of the fallen world is sealed, right? So there's this song of thanksgiving and rejoicing that breaks forth then into confession, then into exhortation, then into evangelism, right? All because of what God is doing and what's going to happen and what is coming. And then Isaiah shifts. From this song, he shifts and he proceeds to describe this difference, this qualitative difference between the paths of the righteous and the paths of the wicked, right? Take a look at this with me, because this is, this is remarkable. Again, we'll just read verses 7 through 11, and then we'll, we'll take it apart again. He says, The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. What are we saying? What's what's Isaiah developing here? Well, again, look at verse 7. He says, The path of the righteous is level. You make level. You do it. You make level the way of the righteous. Now, what are we to see here? Well, the first thing I want to pull out of this is the fact that the path of the redeemed, Isaiah describes as being level. Okay? The way of the righteous, those redeemed by grace, it's it's a level path. And what does that mean? It means, in Hebrew, this word means to be straight. It's a straight path. Okay? You make the path of the righteous straight is the idea. And the idea is that is that the Lord appoints a path a path for us for his people that runs a straight line that runs a straight line from salvation to glory, from redemption to glory. That there's it's a straight line, okay? It doesn't mean that our path will be easy. That's not what this means. Nor does it mean that it'll always be delightful and it'll be absent of any kind of trial, absent of any kind of challenge. But what it does mean is this, is that along that path that God has ordained for us that leads straight from salvation to glory, along that path, we have a lamp to our feet. We've got a light to our path. We have a shepherd who leads us. We have a faithful God, a faithful spirit, you know, who who leads us through this life, protecting us from the snares and the pitfalls that await and devour the wicked. That's the idea here. It's a testimony, really, to God's providence in our lives. Ensuring that, you know what? By His faithfulness and by His grace, 
And even through his discipline of us, right? Which we desperately need sometimes. Isn't that true? Even through his discipline, he will lead us to glory. We will not be lost because the path is straight. It's straight. It doesn't deviate to anywhere else. It's a straight, from, it's a straight path from salvation to glory. And, and the places that right now in our lives sometimes seem rough and perplexing. And we've all been there, right? When you've been in the midst of something that seems very rough and very perplexing in the moment. Isaiah is saying, in retrospect, we will see that they were actually smooth and purposeful according to God's will. That's what he's saying. And the reason is because of how, the reason is found in the way that we respond to them. Or how we ought to respond to them in verse 8. He says, in the path of your judgments, O Lord. In the path of, and this is a word for judgments that means the ways and the workings of God towards his people. Whether it's discipline or, or whatever. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desires of our soul. Isaiah says when we're in our right minds as the remnant of God, when we're really thinking properly about things, that when we're in the midst of the, uh, when we're in the path of God's judgments, right? In all of those things, what we're doing is, is we are, we are insistently waiting upon God. We're not just looking for different circumstances. We're not just merely looking for whatever situation that we're in to come to an end, Right? That's not the idea. Instead, what we're doing is in the midst of it, we're trusting in God's purpose. We're trusting that God does nothing without a reason, right? Without a divine reason. Maybe known only to Him, but He knows exactly what He's doing. And our desire is, is for God, right? Our desire is, is for God. Not just longing, not just different circumstances, but for God Himself in the midst of our circumstances. The reference to His name. Is, is what he's made known about himself, right? His character, his, his covenant faithfulness, and his steadfast love. All those things that we know about God from his revelation that lead us to trust in him and in his ways. And the remembrance is our experience of the, the revelation of his character, right? Our experience, the cultivated memory of how God has faithfully dealt with his people and dealt with us throughout the ages, right? That's the desire of the redeemed soul. In every circumstance, the goal is I want to know, I don't just, I don't, I don't merely want to know why this is happening in the midst of this. I want to know God better. I want to know God more completely. Because the answer to all of our problems and all of our perplexities is to be found in a deeper knowledge of Him and of His ways, right? Right? It's God that we encounter in those things. It's the God that we encounter in the path of His judgments that is the delight to our soul. Not just the end of those judgments, His ways, His discipline, whatever. Right? And yet, Isaiah expresses this this feeling that even though in the even in this patient waiting upon the Lord, there's still this longing in in Him for God to reveal His righteous judgment upon the wicked. Yes, He wants to know God better, and and, he, and, and and in the midst of these trials that He faces in this world that's steeped in sin, that's the goal. But still, He's longing for God to reveal, you know, His righteous judgment. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Now get what he's saying here. Isaiah is speaking of the current you know, spiritual condition of the earth as being night. right? This current spiritual condition of Judah being night. But in the midst of that night, Isaiah is longing to see God display himself, to show himself in all of his might and of his splendor. He's longing for God 
to break through in His glory and judge the wickedness of the earth, to judge the, the hatred of God and of His people. And it's not because Isaiah is vindictive, like just sick it to Him, Lord. That's not the idea. It's not because Isaiah is vindictive. It's because he longs for God's righteousness and his glory to be vindicated. In other words, when he says, you know, the idea when he says, when your, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness, the idea is this. It's like, he's saying to the Lord, like, Lord, it's only when you break forth in judgment and you display your righteousness and your holiness, that's the only time That's the only time that the inhabitants of this earth, as opposed to the remnant, really learn and get a clue what the righteousness of God is. Like, they they just don't get it. They won't learn apart from this. It's the only way that they'll learn is through, you know, your judgments. In fact, I want you to notice what he says here, because the indictment against the wicked is really pretty strong. Isaiah says, look, Verses 10 through 11, if 10 and 11, if favor is shown to the wicked, he doesn't learn righteousness. He does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. I want you to notice, Isaiah speaks very frankly here about the wicked, right? He's very direct about their condition. He says, they don't learn, they go on doing evil, and they don't see. Okay, go on. Look at this with me real quick. First, he says, if favor is shown to the wicked, that is, you know, if God, if God shows divine forbearance with them, if he's patient toward them in their evil, they, they don't learn what's right and what is good. Instead, in their sin, they interpret, you know, God's forbearance. They, they interpret God's forbearance as being, you know, weakness or divine indifference or an inability to act or even that God doesn't exist. That's the idea here. And neither their circumstances or their environment can help them, right? Even if they're in a land that's surrounded by uprightness, that's the idea here, they would act corruptly because of their wickedness. They could not help themselves. They just keep doing it. And they're unable to see the majesty of God, His glory, His works, and His ways because they're spiritually blind. And they don't understand the times. They don't understand the peril they're in. They don't understand the foolishness of setting themselves against God. They can't even see that God's hand is lifted up and it's ready to fall in judgment. They're blind to it. And so they just go about their lives dishonoring and ignoring what God, that God is Lord and Judge and only Savior. And the only thing that's going to save anything, the only thing that can deliver any of them, right, is the pouring out of God's mercy and compassion upon them. That's all that can change their rebel souls. And the remnant can testify to that because they were in exactly that same position before God until God intervened on their behalf. That's what we've been seeing all all along in Isaiah, right? It's a pretty clear picture like that of Romans 9. They've made themselves the adversaries of God. And so Isaiah's desire is God act. Come in judgment. Reveal yourself. First of all, let them see the zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let them see how passionately and jealous, jealously you love your people. Let them see your gracious commitment to your people and let them be ashamed. Let them be disgraced because they have failed to honor God's majesty and failed to consider the end to which a life of hardened rejection of God would lead them. Let them be ashamed. They were glad 
to, to resist God's overtures of mercy and they've reaped the result of such a fateful choice. And the result is this, let the fire of your adversaries consume them. Again, we see here in Isaiah, like we saw in Romans, that God's glory is revealed both in the salvation of His people, but it's also in the judgment of those whom He's hardened in their sin, right? God's glory is put on display. And Isaiah's like, Lord, display your glory, please. And then from here, Isaiah focuses on the glory of God and salvation in verses 12-15. through 15. This is really good. I want you to notice, it's important for us to see, Isaiah doesn't exalt or magnify the remnant as if they had anything to do with their redemption. It's all a work of God's grace. It's all a work of His sovereign mercy and His might. Right? Look at verses 12-15 through 15 real quick, and then we'll look at it, the verses individually. He says, O Lord, You will ordain peace for us, for You have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords beside You have ruled over us, but Your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Now, this is cool. I want you to notice first, in verse 12, listen to how he describes it. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. Now, what is Isaiah saying? Here's what he's saying. Look, the word for ordain here in Hebrew is a word that can describe two things. It can describe setting a cooking pot on a fire, okay, in order to prepare some kind of a meal. Or to appoint someone to a certain experience, okay? So when you think about what this means, the idea is this, is that taken together, the idea is that God is preparing a a meal for a people that he's chosen for this experience. And the menu that's, that's on the table is the full experience of peace with God. It's full acceptance with God. It's full reconciliation with God. It it stands in direct contrast with the fire of judgment for his adversaries, right? The idea is that you've ordained for us an eternal peace kind of thing, okay? And the English translation here of these words, for you have indeed done for us all our works, it's a little clunky. But the idea is that In Hebrew, the idea is that God has undertaken to do for us everything that we need, everything that concerns us, so that our blindness and our wickedness and our spiritual ignorance has been overcome so that we might be reconciled to Him. That's the idea. That God has done everything for us and in us. Everything that's essential. Everything that's necessary for our redemption. It's a confession by Isaiah that salvation must entirely be of God because it certainly can't be of us. You've done all our works. You've done, done for us all our works. And not only is God the one to save His people, He keeps them there. Isaiah in verse 13 says, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. And literally, what this says in the Hebrew, it reads, only by you do we keep your name in remembrance. I don't know why the translators of the ESV didn't translate it in that way, but that's what it says. Only by you do we keep your name in remembrance. In other words, here's what he's saying. You know what? We've had other kings. We've had other lords. We've had other people that have exerted their authority over us. And those other lords for Judah and, and Israel, of course, and, included Pharaoh and Egypt, Right? And, and the foreign rulers in the time of the judges, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and on and on. Romans. Spiritually, of course, we've been under the, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, right? 
But having been delivered, Isaiah is saying that now God is the one that keeps us faithful to Him. Once delivered from these other lords by His grace and His sovereign might, faithfulness to Him, our faithfulness to Him, is His gift to us. He keeps us faithful while all the other lords are brought to nothing. He says in verse 14, they're dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To the end, to that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. Isaiah prophetically declares that everybody else who seeks to rule God's people, who seeks to exert the power over God's people, they're all dead. They're shades. They, they're never to rise again to power. They've been destroyed. And even the very remembrance of them will be, will be cast away. Like all the human rulers, all our spiritual enemies, sin, Satan, and death, they're all powerless in the face of God. God destroys them and He makes us to forget them altogether. They just don't matter. Meanwhile, what has God done? While He overcomes all of, our, all of the lesser lords that have sought to rule us, what has God done? This is cool. It says, but you've increased the nation, O Lord. What's God been up to? He's been up to growing His kingdom. He's been up to saving His people. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. While these other lords are vanishing entirely by the power of God from memory, the one true God is increasing the numbers of His people. For the sake of His divine glory, He's adding to His people day by day, increasing His kingdom decisively and abundantly, blessing and increasing His kingdom by the power of His word to the everlasting glory of His name. Right? God is doing everything He does, what? For the sake of His glory. And the, the narrow kingdom is not going to be confined to, to, the, to the narrow confines you know, of, of the promised land. That's the picture. It's going to extend from it outwards, even to the ends of the earth. And all this is going to result in greater glory to God as His power and as His grace is revealed through all of it. And all that's true, right? Every bit of it is true. But then Isaiah kind of takes a step back. And he describes the current distress of God's people. The current distress of God's remnant. In fact, he uses very picturesque language. He describes the situation that the remnant faces, and he says in verses 16 through 18 these words. He says, O Lord, he's speaking of the Israelites in third person, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we so were we, because of you, O Lord, we were pregnant, we writhed. We have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. And commentators, you know, there's a, there, it, this is a very difficult sort of few verses to understand. But most commentators will agree with this. They say, what Isaiah is expressing here is concern that these promises that God has made, that they haven't yet come to pass. And what does that mean? In other words, there are some, now some who have sought for God, who have experienced His discipline, who have lived through you know, the early stages of all of this, perhaps, who have lived you know, faithfully through the hardships, but now they're dead, they're gone. They haven't lived to enjoy the blessing that is yet to come. And there's no way for us to bring that in. We've got no power to do that in our own strength. That's the reference to the pregnant woman who gives birth to wind. Like, we can't do this. 
What about those people? You know, because they died in faith. When the, when the deliverance of God had yet to be experienced, the full deliverance of God had yet to be experienced by them, and when the inhabitants of this world, the wicked, they have not yet fallen, what's to become of those people? What happens to them? Right? And from this perspective, the idea is that the remnant is expecting this kingdom to come in their lifetime, right? Well, what about the ones? And God answers that question. It's God that speaks now. From this point on, it's God speaking. And he speaks with a divine promise of, a promise of resurrection and refuge from the judgment to come. This is great. First of all, look in verse 19. Again, it's God speaking. He says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. Actually, it says, my bodies shall rise. Those that belong to me shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What's going on here? Here God is promising the resurrection of the righteous to eternal life. They're not going to miss out on Mount Zion. They're not going to miss out on the heavenly Jerusalem, right? By His Word, by His power, those that have died in faith, who have died trusting in the promises of God, they will yet awake and they will sing for joy. They will join in the song of verses 1-6. through They're going to do that. They will join the future song of thanksgiving and rejoicing in the, the dew that rests on them, the death dew, right? That's the idea, the death dew. The death dew that rests upon them is really the dew of light. It's God's light. Death's got no power over Yahweh, the God of life. The earth is going to give birth to its dead. And that's good news for all of us, isn't it? I mean, listen, we will all die in hope of the kingdom to come if Christ doesn't return in our lifetime. Right? Now, I know most of us are thinking it's got to be right around the corner. Like the return of Jesus has got to be pretty close. Right? Everybody's Everybody's thought that forever. Right? (laughs) Paul thought that. Okay? Like, we, 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 we're sure it's going to happen, but, you know, the truth is this. Think about the saints that have come before us, who have fought the good fight, that have remained faithful, right, to the Lord, who have died. Some of them martyred for their faith. Uh, you know, just like us, their bodies, our bodies, they'll lie on the ground, but they're going to be raised incorruptible, right? And they're going to be joined to our souls that have gone to be with the Lord, and we will know the fullness of eternal life with God, right? Our life is just a vapor. And we don't live for this world, We live for the world to come, right? But then God also gives the promise of refuge in verses 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the furious pass by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and and will no more cover its slain. Now, there are two things here. And the first thing I want us to see is this. There's God's word to his people. They need to understand, look, the time of his coming in power, it's not yet. It's not yet. And so what they're to do is this. They're to remain committed to God and not be swept away by the dominating influences of their culture or of their times. In fact, that phrase, shut your doors. It has echoes, doesn't it, of both Noah's deliverance in the ark, you know, and also of, the Passover in the Exodus, when the people of God were instructed to cover their lintels and their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb as the, as the death angel descended upon Egypt and to keep their doors shut, right? The idea for them is, for us, is take refuge in God. Engage in devotion. Not withdraw from witness. That's not the idea. But be secure in God and leave behind the wickedness of the world and its apostasy. 
take refuge in the rock. Here's why. Because the Lord is coming out. The Lord is stepping forth from His throne. He is coming to judge the earth and to punish the wicked and to uncover the blood guilt of all of those who have dealt treacherously with His people and whose blood has cried out for vengeance, right? You remember that scene in Revelation? How long, O Lord, how long until you avenge our blood, the souls under the throne? God will display His divine compassion to His people, but He will bring severe judgment upon the unbelieving world and He will make all things new. He said it and He will do it. In fact, I just want to close with these words. It just made me think, think fitting words from Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. There the Apostle John wrote these words. He said, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Amen. Thoughts, comments, insights, questions from you tonight. Anybody, anything. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, when 9 11 happened, mm-hmm. um, uh, people thought differently <laughs> for a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Right? And they, our Christians thought it was judgment, um, but it lasted a week. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it go, it's right in line with what Isaiah says about, you know, that even in your, 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 your kindness, like, they don't see it. They don't see your hand is raised. Like, they. They don't learn anything. And it's true. That's it's good. Lasting. That's a really good illustration. It's not lasting. Yeah. We don't often, we're not consciously aware that, you know, what we call natural disasters are not natural disasters. We're not. What we euphemize with these, these really nice words, right? They're not. That's, that's the gracious prejudgment of God. 
Yeah, you remember when Jesus was talking, they were like, well, what about those guys the Tower of Siloam fell on? What did he say? Repent. Let, you know, unless the worst happened to you, right? Like, it's, it's not these things that we see. It's, it's the hand of God. Yeah. It used to be if Oh yeah, there's actually yeah, there's a website. I forget what it's called, but you can actually watch earthquakes in real time. Yeah. Like they're being recorded and it's remarkable. Like they're everywhere. Yeah. And they happen continually. It's like there's no break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I know that, you know, like I was saying, everybody thinks Christ is going to come in their lifetime, but it sure does seem like it's becoming the days of Noah. Like the days of Noah in our day. It really, really does. I'm not trying to be an alarmist or anything. I'm just, I mean, but, you know, to some degree, you know. Think about it, right? Yeah. Mark, will you pray for us, bro? Thank you. Father God, it is amazing to look again and deeply into your character and um, to see the dichotomy of how those who are not yours will face judgment and how (coughs) gently and patiently and thoroughly and firmly and consistently you deal with those who are yours. Yeah. It's comforting to know that Nothing catches you off guard. You are everywhere all the time. You know all things. You have a plan, a plan that will not be moved. And you have provided us with the rock that is Christ, that is our pathway to salvation, only him. So I pray that um, as we go about our business and uh, follow you through this life that you prescribed for us, I pray that you would always be on the, the tip of our tongue and always on our heart and always make us feel a sense of urgency to share the gospel, the good news with everyone that we meet, everyone that you put in our path. Give us that awareness and give us the courage and and give us the words to say to those that are dying. It's it's a sense of urgency because one day you're going to reconcile the whole age of man, Father, and, um, and we need to be not wasting our time on this side of eternity and things that have no eternal significance. So forgive us our sins. Um, help us to serve you uh, in, again with gratitude and humility and um, a, an undying thirst for your word. Yeah. You speak to us through your word and you are revealed in your word. And so I thank you for it. I thank you for tonight, Father. These words are amazing. Let us dwell on them and and think about them and meditate on them and apply them to this life that you have given us, Father, that we can serve you well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.